Welcome to Factor Magri, dedicated to New Zealand's primary industry. Each week, I talk with farmers and producers, industry, the science community, and policy makers to hear their stories and expert opinions on matters relevant to both our urban and our rural communities. This week on Factor Magri, I'm taking a look at the venison and velvet markets and the impact the pandemic had on deer farming businesses in New Zealand. Farming is a tough industry, and it is not often that all farming sectors win at the same time. By that I mean farm gate returns can vary based on market conditions for each respective sector. Lamb, beef, venison, velvet, dairy, horticulture or whatever it may be can have very different market conditions and drivers at certain times of the year because they are not all born equal. Of course, on-farm and seasonal variables can also impact supply and demand. It is for that reason I am a fan of mixed farming models. It can reduce the risk profile of one's farming business and the diversity can indeed ensure good pasture and land management. Next week I'm going to take a look at a typical deer farming system and how deer can fit into other livestock and farming systems. But today I have Rhys Griffiths, who is the Markets Manager at Deer Industry New Zealand, to get a view of the current state of play. Let's check in with him now. Hello Rhys, thank you for joining me today. G'day Angus, thank you very much for having me on the um, on the program. How's the start of the year been for you personally? Did you manage a break over Christmas and in Jan? Yeah I did, actually um, just, just last week I managed to get the family away and, and do the Alps to Ocean um, bike trail. Uh, yeah, going cool. From Mount Cook out to Omaru and 320Ks which was... Um, yeah, which was awesome. See, see a bit of the countryside. Was that over a few days? Did you say? Yeah, we kind of do that over about six days. Yep. Um So kind of sixty k's a day, and um, yeah, no, it was it was it was awesome, mate. It was really really good. Yeah, nice. Did you get some good weather? Yeah, our weather was perfect actually. Um, uh, yeah, not not a breath of wind, and um, yeah, not too hot, which you can obviously be uh, going through those that region at that time of year. So it was it was perfect. Now, last week I caught up with uh, Ennis Moffat and we talked about a number of things happening in the deer industry. We touched on markets, but today I'm keen to delve a bit deeper into current market conditions, both domestically uh, and the international and emerging markets um, for deer. Now, pre-COVID, and venison in particular was pumping along nicely. From memory, Farmgate prices peaked at around $12 per kilogram on the hook, which of course was working pretty well for farmers, I'd suggest. And of course, COVID came along and essentially shut down global venison markets. Can you tell me where prices bottomed out and what impact this had, not only on farmers, but the industry and supply chain as a whole? Yeah, so um, so Angus, the price of venison peaked probably at around about that kind of 11.50 mark briefly um, during the 2018 chilled season, but looking at that five-year average pre, um, pre-COVID, so a five-year average venison schedule returns were around about 8.50. Yep. So as you say, things were looking pretty good um, in that lead up to, to pre-COVID, and particularly with the expansion um, into the USA high-end uh, food service sector, which really helped to augment or support that um, high-end uh, restaurant trade in Europe. Yep. But no one could have seen both of these markets shut down overnight. Effectively, yeah. uh, restaurants were closed, and People stopped going out, and that's you know that, that was turning off the tap as you know as, as it were. So at, at its worst, we saw prices drop to a low of about five fifty yep. a kilo, which is obviously not sustainable at all. Mm. I guess venison was was down but not out, um, and certainly many of the producers 
um, exporters and distributors um, in the market had confidence that things were going to recover. It was just a matter of time. So um, unfortunately, the recovery did take a bit longer than we had initially hoped for. Mm. Um, things were particularly bad for our breeders, and we saw arena prices effectively halve in about 2020 uh, before recovering slightly um, last year. In terms of our supply chain, um, for all New Zealand food exports, really, uh, freight and logistics is, a, is an absolute, was and still is an absolute nightmare. Um, and securing reefer containers um, particularly remains problematic, as mm. you no doubt um, understand. Mm. The cost of freight effectively went through the roof, which really didn't help uh, matters and impacted you know, final pricing as, as well. Um, but mm. many importers and distributors carried on buying uh, in 2020, 2021, despite having some resi- residual stock. And they did work really hard at finding a home and, and look for new channels, which, you know, that type of stuff further benefits us when we look to recover. It was really, um, it was pleasing to see uh, late last year the game season um, going well in, in Europe, which of course helped to clear out some stock as well. And this to mention that, uh, trade partners did keep buying venison through the peak of lockdowns and restaurant closures. Has someone in those markets essentially taken a bath on product? Obviously, our farmers at home have uh, to a certain degree. Yeah, yeah, no, good, good point. And um, um, importers did carry on buying, and, and they carried on buying without the certainty of sales. I mean, there was not no certainty um, for you know, I guess anyone in those early days of um, of COVID. And as just mentioned, like farmers, distributors were a bit stressed and under the pump um, to move product through, as well as dealing with the reality of COVID being rife in their communities, causing fatalities. And I guess that's something we've been probably a little bit immune to over there. So they're kind of juggling a lot of um, things going on within their businesses and their families and what have you with um, with COVID. But fortunately, although sadly some restaurants did close, um, fortunately we aren't aware of any distributors going out of, out of business. So they've, they've managed to weather the storm and we're starting to kind of see things pick up now. Yeah, that's great. So we have seen markets recover since last year. What can farmers expect in returns at the farm gate this year, do you think? Yeah, well, it's probably a bit early to provide um, firm prices. Yep. Uh, and there are a number of potential disruptors that can still affect any of our um, any of our food exports um, mm. overseas, not, not at least you know, market closures or port closures or, or what have you. And, of course, securing freight is going to be um, a bit of a problem um, um, for the foreseeable future. But... You know, by and large, our exporters um, appear pretty upbeat about mm. um, about the prospects, and and some are certainly hope, hoping you know for those kind of trend lines to return to that kind of seven to nine bucks. So exporters are looking at the kind of the good fundamental signals in the markets, um, uh, not notwithstanding some of those kind of the issues that can still happen. Um, but yeah, many of them are ho- hoping for that kind of seven to nine dollars um, tram line at, at the moment. So that's you know that things are certainly looking a lot better for the coming season. Well, that's good to hear. Um, well, yeah, we've got to make sure. Um, sorry, just with those caveats that, you know, there, there can be unexpected issues around oh, yes, of course. markets. And, yeah. and freight, you know, the freight thing is, is just going to be an ongoing problem. But, you know, things like um, passenger flights returning um, a little bit more, you know, improving a bit better than what we saw uh, certainly last year as, as New Zealand starts to open up, that, that will help with, with air freight, but sea freight's gonna r- remain a little bit of a little little bit of an issue for yeah for the foreseeable future. Yeah, it's very challenging, all right. Can you explain a bit about the mechanics of those farm gate returns? Let's say working back from the, the customer dining at a restaurant in Europe somewhere, how many hands does product go through, generally speaking? 
Yeah, so um, so remember that, many, as, you, as you know, Angus, there are many different cuts um, that make up their final average price paid, and exporters mm. work, do work closely with their customers to maximise the returns by, by ensuring they kind of um, place each cut to the highest paying markets. Venison is a pretty specialised or exotic item and needs to be handled um, as such, but a, a typical supply chain, you know, from the diner would be something like, you know, the restaurant will buy from a local speciality meat distributor within their own area, um, yep. who are then purchased from a meat wholesaler at a at a major hub, mm. um, who are then um, purchased from a meat importer. Mm. Um, you know, who will be um, buying off a New Zealand exporter, who will be buying from the farm. So, you know, noting while while logistics of perishable products like venison isn't as straightforward as you know, say a lot of the commercial commodity type products or hardware mm. type of thing. Um, but yeah, some companies are starting to explore um, or work more directly with innovative supply lines. Number of hands, probably six from the farm gate um, into yep. into that restaurant um, side of things. You know, farm gate, New Zealand exporter, meat importer. Uh, meat wholesaler at a major hub, local speciality meat distributor within a within a local region, and then out to the restaurant. Um, so yeah, some some companies are starting to look at more direct shipping and and what have you, and kind of working through um, processes like that. But we still recognise that you know venison is quite a speci- speciality item and, and kind of need, needs to be treated as such. So it doesn't kind of go through those major meat commodity trader type of you know big price discounters and and what have you. There's, there's got to be one or two extra steps in the process yeah sure um and what about developing markets how are they getting on i understand china and the usa are showing promising signs is that right yeah so um one of the upsides from a major disruptor like um like COVID is the need to secure uh, new markets whether um, geographic markets or or new channel markets so that channel market as, as mentioned in the usa it was really starting to take off as a prominent market for chilled venison into that food service sector but you know obviously mm-hmm. that was shut down mm-hmm. so exporters have been working on various retail strategies and, and they're really positive um, about the early signals in that kind of retail market into into the US, and they're all kind of operating in different, um, you know, in, in different areas. Whether that's the kind of the home ready meal kit um, side of things, or communicating directly with consumers through um, clubs and and what have you. When we look at the different geographic markets, China has been a market that New Zealand agricultural sector generally has really been. A, benefited from yeah um, but unlike kind of sheep meat or, or beef venison is not widely consumed or understood um, in the Chinese market certainly or particularly in the way that we kind of understand it so you know Dinsa's venison marketing manager uh, has been doing a great job working closely with our exporters on better understanding the consumers um, and the fit for New Zealand venison and again the signals are, are really positive China is now our third biggest um, market for venison, and there's certainly a lot of opportunity for growth there. Yeah, indeed, there would be. And what about the velvet market? That looks to have been a bit of a saviour for our deer farmers over the last couple of years. So, so we've seen um, we've seen um, the prices um, increase by around about yeah, or at least twenty percent uh, in most cases this okay. year. Yeah, um, for venison operators, you know, the increase in velvet returns on their respective size stags and, and some of the younger stags has been very welcome. Um, and for farmers with a velveting focus, you know, it's great to see the, the confidence in this industry um, continue to grow. Um, you know, Angus, it's great to see a market double or industry double in volume um, from about five hundred tons. 
uh, to nearly a thousand tons over the last ten years. But it's absolutely mm. awesome to see it more than triple in value during the same period. Yeah. So for the last three years, um, the New Zealand velvet sector has been sitting at around about $100 million farmgate returns, up from about $30 million some 10 years ago. That's significant. Yeah, yeah, it certainly is. And, um, and you know, this year, um, no doubt when the final figures come in, we'll, we'll probably see um, see those farmgate returns up around about one twenty. Um, you know, potentially between 120, 125 um, at, at an early kind of estimate. So that is, that is an industry that is, you know, has been growing and it, and it is good, but again, a very, very specialised industry to be involved in. Can you tell me about the different grades of velvet, what each grade is currently returning to farmers and the differences? Yeah, cool. Um, so um, there's been a real growth in, in super in super A and A grade type or super A grade type velvet over recent years. So there's probably been... Yeah, you, know, you know, the genetics for velvet, um, velvet's highly heritable and we've seen you know, weights literally kind of double over the last um, over the last 30 or, or 40 years and, mm. and, and the quality of New Zealand velvet. Um, we had some research not long ago and competed with velvet back in 1997 and, and the quality has improved um, markedly. So, so, you know, in terms of the breadth of, of grades, you know, two, two kind of areas are really kind of focused on. So you've got your super A, you know, traditional type grades or your younger um Velvet that is, you know, nicely conformed, and, and they were paying um, over about one thirty per kilogram um, versus non-traditional or a little bit overgrown. They might have been closer to that hundred bucks a kilo this um, this past season. So there was a bit of a differentiator, um, but there was some, you know, pretty good strong demand there. Um, so that's, you know, that first first cut velvet we'd kind of term loosely as Korean grade, but we're starting to see more and more of that going in and being used in, in China. For the traditional Chinese grade, so that regrowth in spiker um, velvet, we saw prices yep. go even higher this year, so kind of around that 30% or, or more, you know, regrowth too was, you know, it was in, in pretty hot demand um, toward the later part of the season. So that's, yeah, that, that are the kind of main grades, I guess, that we'd be commenting on it. At this yeah, stage. sure, sure. I remember in the early 90s, I think it was, Super A velvet got as high as $500 a kilogram from memory at one point or another. Was that simply supply and demand pressure? Yeah, well, and, and that, um, that does get brought up a few times, actually, uh, actually, Angus. So in the early days, you know, the industry was a lot smaller. So, you know, um, producing, you know, a couple of hundred tonnes, um, but but growing, so, so it was pretty good. But, but it yep. was highly volatile. So, mm. you know, you might have got, Kind of around 200, uh, 200 um, bucks a kilo in one year in the kind of nineteen nineties, and mm. and the following year might have been around around that forty one to forty five dollar mark. So yeah, yeah. it was really volatile. It wasn't wasn't a really good platform to to be kind of running a, a farm mm. business or, mm. or um, kind of doing planning around. So it was it was a lot more kind of commodity focused um, um, from from our end. So yeah, very much influenced by supply and demand. And uh, you know, if you went over a peak and and all of a sudden, the, the kind of the prices drop. So one of the you know, really pleasing things to see is is that now we've really you know the industry has really grown, um, mm. and and prices are a lot more stable than they probably once were in those in those earlier days. Oh, that's good to know. So there's more stability now for farmers. Because um, I mean that sounded pretty erratic in the nineties. <laughs> it was it was highly erratic. Um, yeah. As I say, you know, sm- smaller quantities. I remember when I came. <laughs> came into the industry, I think we're about 430, 450 tonnes, and people were saying, oh, you know, you don't want to go over 500 tonnes because the, the kind of the price crashes down. But there was, you know, it's a bit of a um, commodity view. So, yeah. 
So reaching out or um, changing our strategy into targeting kind of the healthy food strategy. So, so New Zealand velvet being consumed as a, as a high-priced ingredient within healthy foods or contemporary food products. So they're quite modern and sophisticated um, in South Korea. Um, has, has meant that we've moved away from that commodity type of thing where people didn't know the provenance and the story behind velvet. Mm. To actually consumers in South Korea understanding and starting to seek out products that contain New Zealand velvet because they're really starting to kind of buy into that provenance. So it's really helped to underpin both one, a growth in velvet consumption back in South Korea mm. um, and, and two, the, the kind of the searching out and, and and wanting to buy New Zealand velvet. So it means it means that we do have a you know, an ongoing and increasing market um, for New Zealand velvet and South Korea and in, now in China as well. Um, and it kind of underpins things to a certain certain degree. So so it's meant that we've able to, you know, able to grow, as, as I mentioned before, you know, mm. going from kind of 500 tonnes to, to just shy of 1,000 tonnes and kind of over the last 10 years and, and, and the price being relatively stable. I mean, we did see mm. the price... Come back uh, a couple of years ago, um, yeah, when COVID hit and, and there's a bit more uncertainty around, so we saw um, prices come back. But they've certainly um, they've certainly made up for that this past year. But um, but but they haven't been the the massive peaks and troughs that we saw in those kind of 1990s. Yeah, um, are velvet markets expanding into new territories at all? Yeah, so I mean, it is important um, remembering back in those 1990s. Yeah, we were reliant on one channel and one geographic market. So that was the traditional medicine market through South Korea. Um, so, you know, two things kind of happened. One, we got into a new channel market in South Korea through the healthy food um, drive, which is now probably a, a becoming a bigger market in South Korea mm. um, for us. And then a new ge- geographic market with um, with China really opening up post the FTA signing and, um, and kind of, you know, becoming a wealthy country that's buying and consuming more health products, including velvet. Remembering that velvet is consumed as a... Um, um, or you know, velvet is widely understood in, in China and Korea and consumed you know, for things like immune function, anti-fatigue and, and what have you mm. through their traditional remedies. Mm. So we have seen a growth in consumption of, um, of velvet in those markets. But we need to keep searching for new markets. We need to keep kind of working with new markets. So we've got a strategy in China around um, healthy food and, and there's been a China Velvet Coalition that's been put together to be targeting that as well as other exporters that are doing a, a kind of a good job. But also in Taiwan, um, so we're working with a big Korean company um, that have launched uh, New Zealand Velvet products in Taiwan. Um, mm. There's a big Korean following in, in, in Taiwan. Um, and looking at other markets like Vietnam, um, like Japan as well, where, where traditional uh, medicines consumed through contemporary food products are, mm. are becoming increasingly popular. Look, it's been great chatting to you today, Reese. I know you're busy, so I'll let you get on, but thanks again. Yeah, absolutely no problems, Angus, and, and really great to have a, have, a, have a catch up on things. Some interesting thoughts and market insights there. A bloody tough couple of years for our dear farmers. I hope that market indicators prove to be right. Join me next week as I take a look at a typical deer farming system as a standalone business and how deer fit into a mixed model. Thank you for listening and catch you next time.